0: We you can turn with them in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 through 20 this morning. But I'll read verses 15 through 23 to set the context. So Colossians 1, begin reading at verse 15. <clears throat> he is the image of the invisible God For it Please the father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross and you who were once once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister, amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we are thankful for the promise that you dwell with us. Thank you for the truth that you dwell with us. And oh, God, this is something that is indescribable, something that is hard for us to grasp and fathom when we consider what we once were when we consider our sinfulness, when we consider our remaining corruption and consider what you did for us. Thank you, O oh God, that you were pleased to dwell with us and you are pleased to reconcile us to yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for the truth that it is that we right now are the body and we are connected to the head. And so we pray, O oh God, that we would recognize that uh, we must love Christ, that we must recognize who he is, we must realize that our life is tied with him as our head and what he has done for us. And so we pray, O oh God, that we would not take for granted the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would not take for granted the blessings it is to be able to be called your church and to be called the new creation and to be called your people. And so we pray, O oh God, that we would love to gather, that we would love Christ. We would not seek communion with you in any other way, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess, oh God, so often we look for our communion with you in other things, in experiences, in other people perhaps. We pray, oh God, we would not do so. May we always remember Christ and him crucified. Christ who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. And Christ who is the firstborn of the new creation, firstborn of the resurrection from the dead. And so help us now as we come to your word. We know that we need your spirit to understand what is going on here. Give us spiritual understanding and wisdom with what is said for these things are high and lofty. These things are difficult. We pray, oh God, that our minds would be renewed. Our minds would be strengthened uh, in your word today. So we ask you to strengthen your saints. We pray, oh God, that you would save sinners and we pray in all things you would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the mystery of the hypostatic union continues, and perhaps some of you are asking, what in the word is hypostatic? What does that mean? When I say hypostatic union, I just mean that there is one person, namely the sun, who has two natures. That's when I say hypostatic union. Two natures are united in the one person. That is something we do not grasp. That is something we really do not comprehend. That is something that is difficult for us to understand. It is something that men of old have spoken of. Men of old have made sure to protect. It's something that is found in the scriptures when we consider and deal with the reality that the Bible says Jesus is God, but also that Jesus is man as well. And this hypostatic union is something that cannot be acquired through our observation of the created realm, cannot be uh, uh, apprehended through our studies of the world around us. We need spiritual eyes to see. We need the work of special revelation. We need the work of God to work in us to confess who Jesus is, because we cannot see it without the work of God Almighty. And the hypostatic union, even though it is a large concept, it is of eternal importance. When we consider who Jesus is and consider what he does in his work for us men and for our salvation, we must consider and recognize, as Paul asserts, that he is the creator. He is the creator of this world, but not just the creator. He is the redeemer of saints. He's the redeemer of fallen people. He is the redeemer and brings people into a new creation. You see in this hymn, or possibly it could be a hymn uh, that we find here in verses 15 through 20, Paul is showing us how practical Christology really is, how important it is to know who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Because if we go away from Christ, if we go away from who he is, if we go away from what he has done, then our faith is in vain. And there was certainly a heresy that was trying to take away the Colossians, a city in Asia Minor, seeking to take away the people of God from Christ. They were asserting other things. They were uh, perhaps it was a blending of Jewish ideas and a blending of Greek ideas. Here's how you really have communion with God. And they did not focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll unpack more of that as we go through. And so in this hymn, we see comparisons going on. The one who is Lord of creation is also the one who is Lord of new creation. And last week, we saw how Paul asserts Jesus is the Lord of creation. He is God, the creator. And today we're going to see how Jesus is redeemer, or the Lord of new creation in verses 18 through 20. And the problem that I think emerges here is the problem, or we can see here, is the problem of inadequate mediators. An inadequate go-between between God and man. You see, there is an important truth. We need a mediator. We have sinned against God, who is holy other. We need someone to be that go-between between us and him, and somebody, someone to be that go-between between God and man us and we need that mediator because of that rending that adam brought into this world when he sinned breaking that communion that we had with god so we need a mediator the problem is we go looking for that communion in inadequate places the world does this and unfortunately we christians sometimes get caught up in this as well perhaps we go looking for a mediator not in christ but in mary or in saints, or in Buddhas, other people that are greater people that can maybe help us, we pray to them instead of Christ himself. Perhaps we go looking to the stars to help us discern what our life should be. Or perhaps uh, with what was going on here, perhaps we worship angels. The Colossian heresy perhaps indicates that the people or the, the heretics were saying we need to worship angels and not Christ himself. And the comforting truth we need to be reminded of so often is that we have communion with God, not with those mediators, but in the one true mediator, namely Christ himself, the one who is Lord of creation and the one who is Lord of new creation. And the blessing is the work of the son gives us that dwelling and communion with him, which is what Paul is going to unpack for us in these verses. And so really what we see in these verses is that Paul affirms that God, the creator, is Christ, the redeemer, or God, the creator, is Christ, the Lord of new creation. And so we'll look at this idea of Jesus as the Lord of new creation under two headings this morning. First of all, the firstborn of new creation, verse 18. Secondly, the source of new creation in verses 19 and 20. If you didn't fall asleep last week, those are similar points to what I said last week. Last week, I said he's the firstborn of creation, and he's also the king or the source of creation. And so it's wonderful when you have comparisons. The firstborn today of new creation and the source of new creation. So let's first look at the firstborn of new creation in verse 18. Now, remember, this is in the context of Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer for the Colossian church, which is in turn a prayer for us, and an important prayer we ought to pray for ourselves and for our fellow Christians. He prays for them that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, for the purpose that they might walk in a way worthy of the Lord, walk in a way that is pleasing unto him. We cannot walk in a worthy way unless we know who our Christ is, know what he has done for us and know what is pleasing in his sight. That's why theology is important. That's why, you know, what we call theory, which is really practical. It's very practical is important for us that we might know who he is, know what he has done and know how we ought to live. So how do we grow? How do we walk? Well, we are filled with the knowledge of his will fully pleasing him being fruitful, increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened by him and giving thanks unto our God. And so the grounding and our basis for our walk with God is the finished work of Christ. And he says that in verses 13 and 14, he, the father has delivered us from the power of darkness and we've been conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love. The reason we can walk, the reason we can pray this prayer is because we have first been redeemed in the son and in the son of his love. So then verses 15 through 20, just ground that. Who is it that has redeemed us? Who is it that has saved us? Who is it that gives us life? Who is it that strengthens us? So we've already seen how he is the Lord of creation. We saw it in the language there in verse 15. I know a lot of high language, but it's important for us to get this right. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. I believe, and as many other commentators point out, This is a clear passage that speaks about the relation between the father and the son. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who is eternally begotten of the father in time past. And the one who is God, the son is of the same substance as the father. And as the father is certainly uh, ascribed creation. So too is the son, as Paul says here, he is the one who is the firstborn of creation. He is the one by all things were created, and for him, all things were created. That action is only ascribed to God. And so what he is saying here is the Son, the image, is God. Now, again, there's that great mystery, one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. We worship one God in three persons, not three gods, but not not one person, one God in three persons persons the father is god the son is god and the spirit is god yet they are not three gods that's why theology is again important because the bible says there's one god yet the son is ascribed to be god and the spirit is ascribed to be god so how do we deal with that very thing so paul is saying very clearly here that the son is the image of the invisible god he is the creator and he, and the point we're going to be moving towards, or he is moving towards in verse 18, he is the one who is preeminent or first in all things. I hate to burst your bubble, but you are not first in this world. We all like to think we're first in this world. We all like to think the world revolves around us. News flash. it does not. It's, it revolves around the sun who is preeminent in all things. And that's the driving force. The sun is Lord over both creation and new creation, all things in Him. And the reason this is so important for us, it's because of what this one who is Son does for us men and for our salvation. And even uh, we highlighted last time too that importance of image and how we have man has been created in the image of God. But the problem is, man brought sin into this world and tainted that image. So we need someone to renew that image, right? The created image, Adam, failed in his task of reflecting the glory of the eternal image, the sun. So the eternal image, without any change in his deity, became man to renew fallen image. The created image, Adam, failed in his task of reflecting the glory of the eternal image man was supposed to spread God's glory to the ends of the earth Adam did not spread God's glory to the ends of the earth so what does God do the sun comes down God himself comes down without any change in him and what he does is he renews sinful image and we are saved and renewed in him And as we will see in Colossians 3.10, he highlights that very thing for us. How do we live? How do we walk uh, in Christ? We are walk already redeemed in his image. Verse 10 of Colossians 3. I've put on that new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We've been redeemed and changed. Our image has been renewed. Our image has been saved, and we are being now conformed to the image of his son, uh, Paul also talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4 as well. A lot of comparisons between Colossians and Ephesians. And so we see that eternal image comes and redeems fallen image. But how does he do this very thing? Well, that's specifically in verses 19 and 20. We start to see it in verse 18 as we see who he is. He, verse 18, is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning? We have this image here that can come from both governments. There's an authority over uh, various governments, the head of a government over its body, or it can have a physical image here. The body, you know, we have a head and we have a body. And without a connection to the head, we're dead, right? You see, it would be a very odd if we were walking or if we saw some sort of limb just wandering around by itself, right? You probably think that'd be a little weird. And so the reality is God's people, as we are saved and redeemed in Christ, we are connected as the church to the head, or at least we ought to be connected to the church, uh, 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 the body, which is connected to the head. You see, without our connection to the head, we're dead. Without a connection to the head, we just wander around. It would be very weird. Again, it would be ridiculous to see a foot just flopping along the road or a hand just trying to move. You see, that's what someone is who is A, not in Christ, and B, who is not connected to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ redeems his saints. He saves them and gives them eternal life. But how does that manifest it? How are we manifested in the body... But through the local church, dear brethren. Now, I think the language here of him being the head of the church refers to the universal church, that is, all the elect saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's whom Christ died for, Ephesians chapter 5. How is that then expressed in local churches? Like in Colossae, like in Philippi, like in Ephesus, like in Surrey. That's why joining a church is so vital. Now, I understand it takes people time. You don't want to find the perfect church. I'm just going to burst your bubble now. You're never going to find the perfect church, by the way, on this side of heaven. But membership is important. It's not really talked about a lot in the evangelical world. So I know it's a shocker when people come in here and I talk about membership. And typically, too, if someone came to me on the first day, hey, I want to be a member, I would say, let's just wait. Let's just wait six months, time, a year, that sort of thing. It doesn't change the fact, brethren, we need to be part of a body. We need to be part of a local body. We need to be joined to a church. Otherwise, no, God is good. God is gracious. We're redeemed in him. Sometimes we just need to grow in our theology. God is patient and good. But it really is important to be joined to the body. Be joined to a church in this way. He is the head of that. He is over all things. Our life is connected to him. And very clearly it says the body, the church. This comes up in Ephesians 1 and, uh, and Ephesians chapter 3 as well. Christ is the head. We are the body in him. And also the implication is how do we grow by being connected to a church in him? And notice he goes on to further explain who he is and the significance of this. Who is the beginning? Now, that's hard for us to grasp, I think. Who is the beginning? What exactly is Paul meaning here when he says this very thing? But I, I really hope Genesis 1-1 is ringing in your ears. In the beginning, God. Or perhaps here we could say, in the beginning of new creation, Jesus. That is, he is the beginning. And we could say, yes, according to his uh, uh, humanity, he is the firstborn of the resurrection from the dead, most assuredly. But he also remains to be God. He is the beginning. He is the first. He is the preeminent over all things. Again, it wasn't in the beginning, here's how God became, because it just says in the beginning, God. A, because God did not become, God simply is. Um, Uh, but it wants us to see that God and Christ is above all things. He is the head, the body of the church, who is the beginning. So Genesis 1-1 should be ringing in our ears, and it also goes in line with the thrust of the passage and really the thrust of the whole book, referring to and comparing with the old creation. So he is the head of the church, he is the beginning, and he is the firstborn from the dead. And notice... This compares with what is said in verse 15, the firstborn over all creation. Here he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, there are some wise guys out there who will say, well, it says firstborn. Does that mean Jesus was the first created? I tried to highlight last time that is not true. The word firstborn in the Bible usually has to do with one who has authority one who is the highest rank, one who has, is above all. We see this in Exodus 19 when God calls Israel the firstborn. Was it because they were the firstborn? No. And even too later on in Psalm 89, speaking of Psalm 89 specifically as well, the, the offspring of David who would come would be my firstborn. That is, as they're waiting for David's greater son to come. So, firstborn has to do with the one who is first above. All things, the one who has authority above all things. Doesn't mean he is the first created being. It means he has authority over all. And so notice that comparison. He has authority over old creation, and now he has authority over new creation. But notice how he describes it firstborn from the dead. The old creation is going to die. All those who are part of the old creation are going to die. But all those who are in the new creation are going to live, even though we die. See what he's saying there? And this is an explicit connection between resurrection and new creation. An explicit connection between resurrection, new creation, and what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is. Brethren, the church, when we gather, as we're making our way to that celestial city, is like a consulate, it's like an embassy. We really, when we enter into this place, begin to launch into worlds unseen. We really enter into new creation. As we step in out of the, uh, uh, into this place, out of that world, we're entering into a new country, so to speak. You see, we need this reminder week by week. We need to be reminded day by day of what we are in Christ and what he has done for us. He is the resurrection from the dead. And he is the firstborn from the dead. And that's important because Israel failed and David failed, but Christ never fails. And so he really is the firstborn of new creation. And verses 19 through 20 unpack further what that means. But notice the purpose for all of this, that in all things, he may have the preeminence. Again, he is not just the Lord of creation, but he is the Lord of the dead. He defeated death and is thus the Lord of new creation. And that word there of preeminence is only found one time in the Bible, and it's here. But it's the same word grouping as firstborn. So what he's saying here is the one who is the firstborn from the dead, then all things he may be the firstborn. And he is the firstborn, and he is the one of highest rank above all he is the one who has the first place above all and notice he has that first place certainly according to his divinity but according to his humanity as well you see one of the blessings of christ being fully god and fully man is that as christ has been raised from the dead it is called what a first fruits of the resurrection the one who is god took on human flesh to die, to redeem, to to rise again and redeem us and forgive us based on what he has done for us, that we, though we die, might be raised as well. Christ, as he ascended into heaven, is that pledge for us in heaven that when he comes again, we shall be resurrected as well in him, as that firstborn of the dead. And so in him, we shall be uh, raised as well. You see, it was the triune plan of God that the one who is son would take on human flesh to die for sinners, hypostatic union. You see, one thing we have to understand as Turretin says, there was, I uh, I am what I have always been God. I am now what I was not man. And I am now, and I will be what I, uh, I will be both the God man. You see, we have to understand that when Jesus or the son takes on human flesh, He does not relinquish anything about his deity. That is poppycock. That is wrong. That is wretched. That is vile. He remains to be God, though he takes on human flesh. It's the one subject of the Son who is fully God and fully man. That's why he is the perfect mediator, isn't it? That's why we see the infinite wisdom of God in the incarnation. That this one who is God takes on human flesh to die on behalf of man that we might have communion with God. That's what the son does for us. That's the mystery and the blessedness of what he has done in his work. And so one thing we have to understand as we consider this hypostatic union is that Jesus does not stop being God when he assumes human flesh, but also he does not stop being man when he ascends into heaven jesus does not stop being god when he assumes human flesh but he does not stop being man when he ascends into heaven what that means is that jesus according to his humanity is not everywhere present right he's at the right hand of god the father but jesus according to his divinity is everywhere present that's so hard for us to grasp that is true and that is right and that's partly we study these things to make sure we don't fancy God to be what he is not and fancy the son to be what he is not, that it might humble us and see what he really does for us in his work. Who he is and what he does as the one who is son, fully God and fully man, as the one who is king overall, creation and new creation as the God man. Jesus has authority over all things And that gives us comfort when we see tyrants. It gives us comfort when we still struggle with sin. Jesus is over all things. He is first. You are not. And I think one thing this section teaches us, as I like to harp on so often, is the importance of gathering as the church, where our growth lies, dear brethren. How it is we grow in the things of God? Well, we need to become and be reminded of the things of God, right? I don't know about you, but we get forgetful of the things of God, right? We get forgetful of what Christ has done. We get forgetful of the benefits that we have in Him. We forget our identity, what we are. We are new creation in Him. We are the new man in Him. And that should give us comfort as we walk this world. Yes, we'll still struggle with sin, but we do so knowing our identity already. In him. Now we express that identity is with the people of God: faith, love, hope, which he talks about in chapter one, verses three through eight, spiritual growth connected to him and being reminded of him. As we come into the church and be reminded of who our head is, that we might then be equipped. I feel like Paul says this somewhere else in the Bible, right? Ephesians chapter 4, when he talks about what the minister does, how he he, he equips the saints how he engages in the work of ministry, and how he builds up the body. God gave gifts to men, or God gave gifts to the church, namely men, to preach the word of God, that God's people then might be equipped to be able to grow, that God's people might then be equipped to be able to know how to care for and love one another as the body. We see this very clearly in Ephesians 4, and he's going to bring up how we grow together in verse 19 of chapter 2. And notice, The emphasis, 19, and not holding fast to the head. How does one not grow? By not holding fast to the head. So what's the implication? Hold fast to the head, dear brethren, that uh, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. You see, this is how we grow. This is how we increase, by being connected to him and by gathering together as the saints that we might be then equipped to then care for one another. Brother, so often we forget this, right? That's why we need the gospel to be uh, preached to us every week and every day. And perhaps it could have been that with this Colossian heresy, is that some of them were saying, you know what? You had Jesus at the beginning. That's great. That's just for new Christians. Here's then how you actually have communion with God. Don't eat these things. You know, Celebrate these various festivals. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. That's how you then have communion with God. And that's why Paul says, uh, he says these things are vain. These things puff up. Verse 19, that's why they're not holding fast to the head. And so, brethren, we need to hold fast to the head and hold fast to the gospel with what he has done. The gospel should always be for the people of God every single week, because as we are united to the head, we hopefully move towards the same goal with that head, perfect and blessed communion in him and with him. Davenant says, the head and the members have a conformity In their destination. What God wants and Christ wants should be what we want. To the same end, that is the preservation and safety of the whole person. Christ is preserving us, brethren. Christ is keeping us, dear brethren. He goes on to say, thus Christ and the members of Christ, which are one person, are ordained to the attainment of one end. That is eternal glory and happiness. To the accomplishment of this end, both head and members assiduously cooperate. This is the care of the head to lead its members to final blessedness. That's why when we come in, we hear about home. We come in, we hear about heaven. We come in and we hear about Christ. We come in and hear about where we are going. That's why we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves. We need to hear Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. He is the firstborn of new creation that we might be raised with him. So that's the firstborn of new creation. Let's look secondly at the source of new creation, verses 19 and 20. And notice we see the plan of the father. Certainly the son is included as well, and the spirit is included as well. Verse 19, for it pleased the father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile. So we see it pleased refers to the plan of God and two things that go with it pleased, to dwell and to reconcile. And so notice we see how he dwells with us, how it is he has the, how it is that we, uh, he is the preeminence, how it is we are connected to the head. Notice the incarnation. I think verse 19 is the incarnation. It pleased that the father in him, oh, it pleased the father that in him all the fullness should Dwell. And perhaps one of the heresies at this point, again, it's very hard to pinpoint the exact heresy arising out of the book of Colossians. But again, perhaps there is this Jewish blending with Greek understanding, and the Jews really believed they had communion with God through a temple. And so, again, perhaps the temple language is important for this book. How God dwells, right? The garden was a temple, the tabernacle, is where God dwelled with Israel, the temple is where God dwelled with Israel. So how then do we dwell with God, or how does God dwell with us? And so these guys are saying, again, here's how you dwell with God, not Jesus, but vain philosophy. Not Jesus, but you need to eat these sorts of foods, then you'll have a real experience with God that way. So they perhaps assumed that they had somehow ascended into the temple of God by these things. They somehow climbed with their experience. They somehow climbed by climbing the mountain and had an experience by rolling around like a baby. Oh, this is God's with me. Now we do that all the time, dear brother. Maybe not. We do it like that, but we always want those experiences, right? But I'm going to be honest with you, brother. most of the time, the way in which we experience God is not that way. The way in which we experience God is here in his word. So often we're tired and we come into this place and we're, well, weary and heavy laden, and we need to be reminded, here's what God says. Here's who Christ is. Here's what he has done. And in fact, verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he uses similar language in contrast with these false things. Verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Not according to Christ. Not according to Christ, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Brother, you might never feel like God dwells with you. But if you are in Christ, you've believed upon him, you've laid hold of him, that's true whether you feel like it or not. That remains to be true whether you realize it or not. Isn't that what faith is? You know, clinging to what God has said. God, I don't always feel you near but I know based on what you've said, you've said you dwell with us and you've said you've promised to dwell with us until the end of the age. There are Christians that go through their entire life never feeling that God is near, but they lay hold of Christ himself. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How is it that we then dwell with God It's because God first dwelt with us in the Son, taking on human flesh. Verse 19 of chapter 1 and verse 9 of chapter 2, I think, refer to the incarnation. Christ taking on human flesh. And there's similar language in John where the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. After Adam brought that rift into this world... After Adam failed to attain perpetual communion with God, after our communion with God was ruptured by sin and darkness, God Himself is pleased to dwell with us in the Son, that we might dwell with Him forever. The language of temple, I think, is alluded to or is clear based on the allusion of verse 19 to Psalm 68. Uh, In Psalm 68, the language of dwelling and fullness typically isn't used very often in the Bible. It's used in Psalm 68. So you can turn with me back to Psalm 68. So again, temple concept in our minds. But Psalm 68, I think Psalm 68, uh, the, the occasion of it is when the Ark of the Covenant makes its way into Jerusalem. So 2 Samuel 6. Uh, the Ark, which is a symbol of God's presence, is making its way into the temple. And so perhaps there is this procession of God moving towards uh, that place. And so specifically in verses 15 and 16 of Psalm 68, the mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which, which God desires, or pleases to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. See, what he's saying there? The mountains of Bashan were probably the biggest mountains, and they're fuming because God chose a little mountain. God chose a little place. God chose Jerusalem to dwell there. And, brethren, when you consider the language of it pleased in Colossians, and when you consider what we are, both in our, the fact we are created and the fact that we are sinful. It pleased the father to dwell. That is a great mystery. You see, every other religion is trying to ascend the mountain. What does God do? He comes down that we might then ascend in the Lord Jesus Christ And so the temple language is very clear as the ark moves its way into that temple. This is where the Lord has chosen to dwell forever. And the son himself dwells with us that we might dwell with him. Christ is the temple. Christ is Yahweh based on Psalm 68 speaking about God. And Christ is the temple. John 2, Revelation 21. He is the way in which we have access to God. We don't need any other intermediaries. We have the son and we have his finished work. The meaning is we don't pray to Mary or to some other saint or to some other person. We pray to Christ who dwells with us. So it pleased the father that he would dwell with us, but also it pleased the father that by him he would reconcile. How is it that we dwell with God? Well, he first dwells with us, but also he reconciles us to himself. But notice he's not going to get there yet until verse 21. Here he talks about cosmic salvation, cosmic reconciliation. The implication of the words peace and reconcile means that there was that rift. There was that enmity. There was that war, so to speak. Yet who is the one who brings the peace, the offended party, the one who was wronged, the one whom we sinned against. He is the one who brings about this reconciliation. Remember God, there's enmity between us and God, but God had to distance himself from us because of our wickedness. God has to, by his nature, hate sin as he is perfection itself. And so it makes the mission of the son all the more perplexing, all the more indescribable. Not only is it that God dwells with us in the incarnation, but God redeems us to himself in the incarnation and the work of the son. And so we see the cosmic effect of it all to reconcile all things to himself by him, by him, that is Christ, all whether things on earth or things in heaven, this parallels with what we saw uh, uh, last week. Where he says he's the creator over all things, and now he is the redeemer of all things. This does not teach universalism, but when Adam brought sin into the world, creation was involuntarily subject to <clears throat> decay. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, the creation groans, right, and longs for redemption. You see, you look all around, there's change and decay, and all that we see, I saw dead rabbit dry, you know, as we're driving here and there's a good sermon illustration, change and decay. You know, it's another good example of the fall. Weeds can't stand weeds. Weeds are a clear example of the fall of this world. Change and decay, brethren. Yes, God made the world in the space of six days and called it very good. We don't change. uh, We don't take away. We're not taking that away. But also because of sin, uh, because of Adam, Sin brings decay to this world. There's death, there's sin, there's sadness, there's decay, there's sorrow, all those things. And creation, whether things on earth or things in heaven, knows that very thing. So that's his purpose. It was a cosmic reconciliation, what Christ is going to do with the new creation. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, all things to himself, and how he does it is having made peace through the blood of his cross. How do we have peace with God? Through the one who dies in our stead. Through the blood of his cross. Christ's death has cosmic ramifications. The crucifixion has cosmic ramifications. But that cosmic ramification has certainly a personal application as well and you see when we consider our own sins and he's going to drive to that personal application uh, in verse 21 which we'll look at more so next week but we see you once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works we once were alienated by our wicked works we must consider what we once were dear brethren And consider what our remaining corruption still reminds us of we once were. And consider what we are now in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the one who is Lord of creation, as we point out last week, cares for you. But how does the Lord of creation care for you? By redeeming you. By saving you. By giving you everlasting life. This is why the mystery and the wisdom of God is seen, again, in the mediator, who is God and man. You see, following the decree for man to sin, it follows that redemption had to happen in this way. You see, man infinitely sinned against God because God is infinite. And so it, because of his infinity, it will require an infinite punishment. You see, if you're not in Christ, your sin requires an infinite punishment. And that infinite punishment will be rightly exacted when Christ comes back or when you die. The only way to flee that infinite punishment is in one who was an infinite sacrifice. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you lay hold of Christ, if you believe upon him, you shall have forgiveness of sins. You shall have redemption for your sins. You shall have mercy in him and you shall live forever with him. If not, you shall die in your trespasses and sins and die infinitely and die forever. Davenant says God showed his justice in exacting a full satisfaction. The death of an infinite person, the son, for infinite guilt. He showed his mercy in exacting it, not from us miserable creatures who were incapable of paying it, but from Christ who could pay it. Isn't that the gospel? Jesus lived, died, and rose again. And he lived, died, and rose again for wretched sinners. And he redeems sinners. And if you believe on him, you shall have forgiveness and redemption. In him. It is very personal, isn't it? Sin is cosmic, but has a personal application. The same thing is true with redemption. Christ saves people and saves sinners. What Adam failed to do, Christ performs and gives us all we need as the new creation people, and he does so as the one whom we sinned against. Davenant again says, in one with reference to the divine essence and nature, in regard which he also is offended. The son who is God, we sin against. In the other, with reference to the divine economy, whereby this person, although offended, was willing to take human flesh. And by a voluntary engagement to, to be the medium or the way of reconciliation between God and men. The one whom we sinned against is the way in which we have forgiveness, the way in which we have communion, the way in which we have everlasting life. Brethren, that should cause us to stop and ponder and consider the ineffable or indescribable plan of God in salvation. Do we really consider it as much as we should? Probably not. Do we consider the gospel as much as we should? Probably not. And really through a world without, with, uh, in eternity, world without end, we are going to sing his praises. And will we really fully grasp it even then? I don't know that we will. But that's why we believe it by faith. This is true. This is who Christ is. And this is what he has done. And he, is came, he came to live, die, and rise again for his people. And thankfully, even though we don't see him, we love him, right? That is a supernatural work of God even though we don't see him or feel him, we confess he still abides with us, right? He abides with us day by day, and he guides us to the new heavens and new earth. There's no other way to have communion with God than through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in good works, not in vain philosophy, not in intermediaries, but only in Christ alone. And What are some of the promises Christ gives to his church? Behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. And you see this expressed very clearly. The head feels the pain of the body. And you see this very clearly in Acts chapter 9, whereas Jesus appears to Saul and says, Why are you persecuting me? We are the body. He is the head. He loves us. He cares for us. And we are in him as new creation. brother, may we never forget that. And may it be the reason we come to gather, may it be the reason we sing praises to God Most High for all the things that he has done for us, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Well, let us pray. We confess, O oh God, that your gospel is right and true. We confess and believe that Jesus lived died and rose again. We confess that he is the God-man, fully God and fully man. But we also confess, O oh God, we do not truly comprehend what this is, but we believe it to be true. And thank you, O oh God, that there is mercy. Thank you that there is grace uh, in your plan. And thank you, O oh God, we see your mercy and grace and love in the work of the Son. Thank you that he is the head of the church. Thank you, O oh Christ, that you hear us even now. And we ask, oh God, that we would know by your word and what the scriptures say, know that we have eternal life. Know your presence, know who you are, and know what you've done for us uh, in your word. Please forgive us for our neglect. Please forgive us for our forgetfulness of the work of the Son. Please forgive us for neglecting and forgetting the plan of salvation and worshiping you aright for what you've done for us. And so we pray, oh God, that we would now sing your praises, that we would honor and praise you with our words, honor and praise you with our lives. And we also pray that you would come quickly and please help us for there's still so much remaining corruption. Please with thy church abide, be near to her, be be her savior, Lord and guide. And we pray, O Christ, that you would hear us this day. Pray that you would save sinners this day as well, whether it's here in other parts of the world that might know the weight of their sin, but have that weight lifted in the work of the son. So be with us now, we pray by your spirit. Help us to give you glory and praise and honor in all things. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.